Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mythgard Movie Club. We are here today to talk about Blade Runner, in case the uh, big picture of Han Solo there, or I mean, uh, Richard Deckard uh, wasn't a clue. Um, yeah, so before we get into the discussion, uh, just a few announcements, as usual. Um, for those who don't know, we've got four new regional moots coming this year, and two of them, as of this afternoon, actually have real live information on the Signum website that you can go out and check and even register for them. Uh, Sunshine Moot, which is coming up in March, it's pretty quick. February is like in a few hours. So uh, we're, we're going to be uh, coming up on Sunshine Moot here pretty quick. The uh, call for papers is out there, the registration link, and they have some fun uh, post-moot and pre-moot activities um, that people can participate in as well if you're uh, interested in that sort of thing. One of them may or may not be at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. So if you're interested in that, then maybe uh, go check that out. Uh, and then Nettermoot, our first continental Europe moot, um, is uh, there's some information out there that's in April, on April 13th. And uh, it's got its own website, lots of good stuff up there for people to go check out as well. Um, we've, uh, our, I don't know if Minute Moot is actually the affirmed name of the, the Massachusetts moot, but that one's still kind of being worked on for the fall and Kiwi Moot. Um, those are both still tentative as far as dates and, and all of that goes, but uh, we'll share information with, about those as we have it. Um, and of course, the big news is our annual gathering, Myth Moot in June uh, has been announced. Registration is open. It's currently early bird pricing. So if you want to go out there to signumuniversity.org slash mythmoot, you can get the, the details on uh, the pricing and all of that. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, we have one of our special guests confirmed, Diana Dwyer, um, who is uh, the company they, uh, what, what's the name of her book? Um, the did, company. Was it, did I get that? The company they keep. Okay. I, for, I had like a, yeah, uh, a, a, a brain thing going on there. I couldn't remember the second half of that. But uh, yeah, anyway, so lots of good information there. You can go out, register for MythMoot um, if, you, if you want. And then um, we've got our, uh, I, I don't think registration is quite open yet for our summer classes, but it's getting there. It will be soon. We just ended registration for the spring classes, um, and I know uh, the forms are being set up for the registration for our, our new summer classes, um, which, if you'll notice, in the list here, we've got four great classes, one of which is brand new on the Inklings and King Arthur. Um, you may have heard of a book of a similar name. Um, I wonder where that came from. Yeah, so uh, that will be a really interesting one. The, the course isn't just looking at the book, obviously. It's actually looking at um, the whole King Arthur tradition and kind of how the Inklings took it and, and transformed you know, stuff and, and adapted it to their own stories. Of course, it will be um, parts from uh, the book edited by our own Serena Higgins, uh, which will be included as part of that class. But it goes uh, much more in depth into a lot of the uh, King Arthur division and, and things and stuff. Um, the Force of Star Wars. Uh, we've got a new Star Wars movie coming out this year, so uh, good time to, to to kind of pull from the vault and uh, bring back the Force of Star Wars. Doctor Sturgis's great class there. Um, I, I took it. I think Don, you took it right. Like I, I definitely you recommend it. At the same time, I think. Um, uh, Beyond Middle Earth. Uh, a course by uh, Dr. Olson, Corey, the Tolkien professor, of course, uh, with some uh, stuff in there from Tom Shippey. So a great sort of exploration of Tolkien's Middle Earth. And then Beowulf and Old English for all of you who have taken 
the introduction to Anglo-Saxon, um, this is sort of the, you know, quintessential next step, right, is to, to do a workshop in Old English uh, and Beowulf. I mean, what else would you start reading, right? Um, I, I mean, I know there's a lot of stuff you could start reading in Old English, but still, uh, it's a good place to begin. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so we just wanted to make sure you guys know the next um, sessions in the movie club. We're still um, finalizing the schedule for the full year. So um, TBD for, you know, the kind of spring and summer and fall uh, slots, we haven't quite figured out what order we're doing things in. Um, but next, we're definitely going to do the follow up to Blade Runner, which is Blade Runner 2049. Um, disclaimer, we're probably going to table a few topics um that we might have covered in this movie club for the next session um things about like where the story would go from here some speculation that might have been had that gets answered or not answered in the following film i just feel like that's going to be um better if we kind of hold that off so if you have questions related to that um you know either save them or else you know send them to us now and we'll kind of uh put that on the docket for next time and then after that is going to be a new film called Captive State, which we know very little about, except that it's sci-fi and uh, stars John Goodman. And um, that actually is released in theaters on March 15th. So um, go see that in the theater if you can, and then meet us on April 18th to talk about it. And there's actually two trailers out for that, so you can go watch that. Two whole trailers. So it sounds yeah. like it's happening. It, it's like legit. <laughs> It's actually a movie that's actually coming out to theaters. That was one of the ones we meant to talk about last year, and it got pushed back. So I'm excited that that's actually coming out. Um, so we just want to in introduce ourselves really quickly as usual. Um, I'm Kat Sass. I work at the University of Pennsylvania and volunteer for Signum and Mythgard. Um, Curtis and I host a podcast called Cat and Kurt's TV Review, and I sometimes when I have the time, blog at ravingsanity.wordpress.com. Oh, sure, I can go next. Um, Dominic Nardi, I'm a political scientist by day. Um, also, uh, sometimes Signum student. Um, uh, I, I sometimes blog and tweet at Nardi Views, my last name and then Views. Uh, currently, one of my big projects is I'm I'm trying to co-edit a book about Dune, where I'm collecting scholarship, various articles about Frank Herbert's Dune saga. Um, we're still still accepting papers, so you know a bit of a plug here. Look for our uh, look for our call for papers online, and if you're interested, please submit something. And I'm Chris Swank. I have been a Signum student, a Signum graduate, a Signum preceptor, a Signum thesis director, and <laughs> I've been there from day one. And I'm currently working on my PhD with uh, Dr. Dimitri Fini, who's one of our faculty. Um, and gosh, the first time I saw Blade Runner, I was working at a small local theater in um, the summer of 1982. And there was one screen and it played every night. And as soon as all the candy was sold and everybody went to sit down, my boss let me go stand in the back of the theater. And I watched every night. I watched this movie. I've probably seen this movie more than any other movie besides maybe Holy Grail. 
How many times um, do you think you saw it in the theater? Oh, well, the, that first run, I think we had it for two weeks. So, you know, maybe, maybe up to 14 times. And then periodically since then, VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, all that good stuff. Just, just a bit of a plug here. If you have not seen Blade Runner in 4K, you really should. Um, it's an excuse to buy a 4K TV. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right. And I'm Curtis Lyon. Um, as Kat mentioned, we have a podcast, Kat and Kurt's TV Review, where we talk about sci-fi and fantasy shows. Um, I also am a Signum graduate uh, a couple of years ago now. Wow, it's two years since then. Um, and uh, yeah, I uh, do some other writing and stuff. Uh, Laser Fillet is another of my projects and uh, do some writing at my own blog, CurtisWine.com. So feel free to check that out or not, whatever you want to do. Um, so yeah, let's move into our discussion. So um, we've had a few movies, uh, movie discussions that we've talked about that were adaptations of books. Um, this, uh, I don't know, this one feels a little different to me. Um, maybe just because, I mean, while there are obviously a lot of differences, I think um, the tone and the feel is very much more similar, I think, than maybe some of the others that we looked at um, between the book and, and the movie. But yeah, we just kind of wanted to start um, I think everyone here has on the panel has read now, as of this afternoon, Kat included, uh, has read as of about uh, an hour ago <laughs> to, to Android's stream of electric sheep. Um, but yeah, kind of what what are your uh, initial thoughts here about uh, the adaptation, the source material, anything um, you know that that you want to start with there? Um, and I'll, I'll throw it to. Uh, Dom and Chris, if you guys want to start and just kind of give your your thoughts there. Sure. Well, maybe I can start just by giving some context for the book, um, because I think that ties into the movie as well. So Philip K. Dick, the the, the um, author who wrote Dune Under a Dream of Electric Sheep, one of the one of his inspirations for the book, as well as for his other books like The Man in the High Castle. Um, was that he he was really he read a diary of an SS officer, and this SS officer was complaining about how he couldn't get to sleep at night because there's the screams of the children who you were in the concentration camps were just too loud and were keeping him up at night, and like like a normal human being, Philip K. Dick's response was, "Wow, this guy just does not have any empathy. What's wrong with him?" And that began a a, a fascination on Dick's part with just the question of empathy. Why do some people lack empathy? What is empathy? What does it mean to see somebody else as human? Man in the High Castle was a bit more direct in that it's actually it's literally an alternate history of what if the Nazis won World War II. But Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep is also very much an inquiry into that question, into empathy, into who has it, why, and it's for that reason that I think Blade Runner is actually an adaptation of the book. Despite all the differences, despite the differences in tone, and the book has this whole subplot about this, this religion and this reality TV show that's just excised from the movie. But despite all that, the movie is still interested in that same fundamental question. So, and I, I actually think in some interesting ways, maybe that we'll get into this later, but I think they, the movie and the book come to slightly different conclusions about empathy. 
but they're still asking the same what if questions. So it's 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 not like I Robot the movie, which has nothing to do with Isaac Asimov's stories. So yeah, and and knowing that explains some of the things in the movie that are a little bit obscure, like why do they need to look at somebody's eyeball when they're trying to figure out if they're a human or a replicant? And it has to do with you know the questions they ask. You you turn this tortoise over and you can't turn it it can't turn itself back and it's baking in the sun and they're trying to see this instinctive response you know that most people have to stress in the eyeball and that a replicant might not have and all of the issues with having fake animals uh, versus real animals and nobody can afford them it becomes kind of an economic question in the movie but in the book it's really a question about if you can have pets, you can show empathy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting too. And I, I don't know the history of, you know, sort of the science behind uh, looking at like decision making and that kind of thing. But I, I know there have been studies done where, um, you know, there's there it, it, there's patterns. You know, they'll do like a fMRI of of a you know a brain scan showing like activity in your brain where you know, a decision has been made by your brain before you're even like conscious of it. And, and those types of things where, um, you know, it's obviously is sort of captured in, in the book and, and maybe sort of implicitly, like you were saying, Chris, and in the movie where they're doing these retinal scans and kind of that same, same idea of like how, you know, what's the reaction time from when you hear a question to when you're, you know, feeling empathy or, or when you're physiologically responding to empathy, I guess. Um, and that kind of thing, but it, it, it's really interesting how that um, plays out just in sort of the real world science of, um, I know decision making is a different thing, but that same idea of like, you know, the the feelings and the brain process versus the physiological response and, and all of that. And, you know, how close can, can we get in, you know, AI to mimicking that or, or actually copying it? And then, you know, what's sort of that point of, you know, the turning point of, you know, when does AI become life? I feel like that's the question that the book and the movie both sort of play around with is, you know, if you, if you can't tell a difference between the two, then, you know, is, is the AI, are the androids actually alive or are they not? Um, and, and all of the animals too, because like, that's the big thing, right? It's like, you're it, in the book, I think it plays a little more, um, close to the best of whether or not the animals are robotic or, or not. And then in the movie, you kind of find out like right away that like the owl is actually a, a you know, electric owl, but um, there's that idea of like, okay, well in this world where all the animals are extinct or, or nearly all of them, then, you know, does creating animals that are close enough, so close that you can't tell the difference between them. Is that the same thing or is it not? Or are you just trying to show your neighbors how empathetic you are because you right. know the sheep is right. electronic, but all your neighbors think it's real, so you must be a cool dude because you have a real sheep. Sure, and and I guess to that idea of like you know can you you know to put it very uh, uh, non academically you know can you fake it till you make it like is, is right. there is there a value to you know faking empathy, which which is kind of a reversal, right? If, if you're faking empathy, is that really empathy if people think it's empathy? Um, and there's kind of layers there too, to the whole Android thing. 
Mm -hmm. well, I like the uh, the use of animals works with that too because of the associations of um, like this you know and this gets us into the kind of is empathy the thing that makes us human like the whole associations with psychopathy and everything of yeah. oftentimes cruelty to animals is is a you know a, a red flag for certain personality disorders and things like that so the idea that you know we've in it, like you said, in a world where animals are going extinct, we've elevated the animal to this all important, you know, litmus test of whether or not you value life other than your own. And that kind of makes uh, some bit of sense. So even like, and, and, and in terms of adaptation, I think what this movie does really well is kind of take things that are spoken about at a certain length in the book and sort of translate them into plot and visual details so that the ideas are there they're just presented yeah. as more the backdrop rather than you know kind of speechified about um so things like rachel kind of walking around in a big fur coat like that's you know i don't think i ever registered that when i had seen just the movie the first time but now after reading the book and then you know kind of going back to the movie you don't really need to comment on it suddenly that strikes me in a very different way like i i wonder is that real fur is it is it fake fur yeah. what what's what is that supposed to say if even if it is fake what's the status symbol that she's kind of trying to you know give and everything so it's a really interesting way to adapt those ideas well and and yeah and there's lots of little things like that right because he has like a little what is it, a snake scale or something right that he's like trying to figure out where it comes from and it's like yeah when you add that layer of empathy you know and and animals to it which isn't again it's never really explicitly talked about in the movie or at least not certainly not at length as it is in the book right. Right. um then yeah definitely adds another layer to it. Uh, Nick uh, Palazzo asks, uh, <laughs> is, is this something uh, like someone buying a Prius to show their friends how concerned they are about the environment? I mean- yes. There's something performative about it, yeah. I don't, I don't think uh, PKD, I don't think the term virtue signaling was uh, you know, popular back then, but I, I do think there's an element of that for sure. I think um, the thing I find really fascinating about the, the movie and the book and that they, they do this in different ways. Empathy, you know, I think they both, I think the, the humans in the, in the society correctly identify empathy as an important part of the human experience, but it's become a sort of a status symbol. And the book and the movie in, in different ways try to turn that on the, the reader, the viewer, and say, are you really as empathetic as you think you are? In the book, sure. the, the, in the book, the replicants are called androids, by the way. Um, in the book, the androids um, will sometimes engage, they, they will sometimes try hurt animals. There's a scene where several of the androids are pulling legs off a spider. And the, one, of the, 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 one of the few empathetic human characters in the book is horrified at this. And the reader shares that horror. But then in real life, and I think in the, in the book, the the, the the book is trying to trick you into thinking, well, these androids are not human because they are doing this to the spider. Yet, if you take a step back, we know that there are plenty of humans who abuse animals. You know, plenty of kids who probably have smushed a, an ant without thinking twice about it. Are they not human? Like, you know, 
are we as humans not extending that empathy to animal? And what does that say about us? And the movie does it slightly differently, I think. And and that all the all the humans in the movie are pretty dulled emotionally. Decker mm-hmm. doesn't seem to care about anything in his life. You know, Bryant is all about sending this 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 Blade Runner out to kill uh, replicants. Meanwhile, the replicants are full of passion. And they care about each other. Uh, Roy Batty is romantically involved with Pris, and they're kissing. And you know, Zora is just you know like full of sexuality and life. But the humans are all just doing their job, living day by day. So it's it's kind of an interesting twist on you know the the humans are trying to signal their humanity through empathy, but they're often not acting as human as the replicants are. Um, but Zora, Zora's relationship with the snake, I find really fascinating. You know, she has this snake. So in that world, it's supposed to signal that she can be empathetic. She has this pet, but she makes love to it on the stage, basically. And is that animal abuse? And there's a whole bunch of humans sitting in the audience like that's their entertainment is watching the woman with the passionate snake. And I had the subtitles on this time while I was watching, uh, while I was listening to the Ridley Scott commentary. And um, yeah, they're, they're pretty out there saying that she's just up on the stage having fun with the snake. So very complicated relationship. It's complicated. That's their Facebook status. It's complicated. <laughs> So, I don't know, um, you know, one of the things that the, that the film is widely, uh, well, praised, acknowledged, uh, is sort of from the visual, like the influence of, um, and I think that's, I, I think that's what this slide is getting at. Forgive me if I get the slides wrong because I didn't put a lot of this one together. But you know, just the visual aesthetic of um, the film itself and kind of um, one. I mean, you know, early '80s, like the the graphics hold up pretty darn good. Uh, and I have not seen it in 4K, but I'm assuming by Dom's comments earlier right. that. Uh, you, you know, that it holds up even better under, you know, um, you know, that higher definition and all of that, which is really interesting because um, there aren't a lot of films from the early 80s that do hold up in that sort of way. Um, um, I'll just make a, so just, just if we're talking about the aesthetics, uh, the, maybe you should also mention that there have been different versions of the film. So we're sure. talking about the, the 2007 final cut, which does not have their voiceover narration, but the final cut also has a few very small tweaks to the special effects. So uh, there's a there's a police car that rises in one scene, and they just digitally removed the the, the cable that was atta- okay. attaching the car to the crane. So I don't know if it would hold up in 4K. I don't know if the original would hold hold up in 4K, but the, the 2007 final cut does. Okay, and that's fair enough. Um... Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I don't know enough about the technical, uh, you know, workings of that sort of like, you know, remaster, uh, remaster that, you know, maybe that's a lot of what we're seeing now. But, um, you know, it certainly, it certainly did influence the look of, 
plenty of other films to come later, um, some of which we may or may not talk about in Movie Club at some point or another. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know if anyone has anything particular to say about the look and feel. Um, the you know, it, it's just one of those things that is that's com commonly uh, you know sort of talked about when you talk about you know when people talk about the film um, from a visual aesthetics point of view. Yeah, I mean, I can um, send the the link around. Dom um, shared with us a YouTube, you know, just short like ten minute, um, uh, you know, YouTube video about the influence for good or ill of of at least on a visual level of Blade Runner. And when you start thinking about it, it, it is kind of unbelievable the uh, you know debt that everything you know futuristic dystopian sci-fi owes to this movie since then um it, there's a funny moment in the video where the guy's like i'm not just gonna rag on altered carbon but then he goes on to like use altered carbon as the example <laughs> for all the rest of his things and it's hardly the only <laughs> offender but you kind of realize that you know this kind of dark rainy you know noir aesthetic with um very uh you know tokyo kind of you know asian characters everywhere huge kind of Times Square advertisements and billboards, um, the seedy underbelly of, you know, kind of sex workers and homeless people and, uh, you know, and then the kind of noir detective working his way through it, how much that has become the kind of standard, um, you know, to the extent that it's hard to think of things in the genre that don't go for that visual look. Um, so it's, it's pretty amazing the impact that this movie had. And all that's from the movie. I mean, I, I feel like the, the book, having just finished it an hour ago, is not intensely descriptive of, you know, the visual world. You kind of get a sense of the dystopia after this cataclysmic war and, and the dust. And, you know, there's certain mm -hmm. kind of um, visual things that come across. But, um, but I don't feel like that th this film is stepped out of the pages of the book in terms of how it looks you know you really have to go to the film designers i think to to find the roots of and their you know their sources being things in, in other comic books and other science fiction artwork and everything it's not so much from philip k dick himself there there were no noticeable lead pod pieces um, no the, to protect you from the radiation uh, i think <laughs> dick had this term and i it, is it with like kibbling or something where kibble? Yeah, kibble. Yeah, kibble where everything like is falling apart, and you see that in yeah. some of the buildings, like where um, where Sebastian lives in the movie. The it's falling apart. Um, its pipes are breaking, like my pipes are breaking, and my <laughs> it's been a fun week. Um, but you, but they don't really talk about these giant advertisements and all the light. Um, yeah. All the sources of light and fires shooting up in the middle of town. Yeah, it's definitely the film is its own beast. For what it's worth, uh, Philip K. Dick unfortunately passed away before the movie was finished, but he was shown um, just a, a rough cut of some of the some of the special effects, some of the setting, and he was initially very skeptical about the film. But when he saw that 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 montage of footage, he said, "Wow." You guys just reached into my mind 
and pulled the mm -hmm. images out of my head. Um, so yeah, I, I, so I, I agree with Kat. The book itself does not contain that description, but Philip K. Dick approved, which, um, which is great. And yeah, the film, uh, the film aesthetics are just so iconic. And I think it's because the mood, it's not, you know, it, it, it's not even just the look, it's how that look makes you feel. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the way that, that Decker just leans over on his porch and looks at the city, it really gives you that sense of loneliness and being in a very, being around millions of people but feeling all alone. The advertisements feel oppressive. They feel like they're in your face. And that's something, and this, this YouTube video I sent around touches upon this, it's something that a lot of a lot of other films have copied the aesthetic of Blade Runner. I don't think they've always captured the mood of Blade Runner, though. I don't think they've always understood what that aesthetic is supposed to make you feel. And that's something where I think even if you turn the even if you turn the the, the voice and the sound, I, I don't I don't turn off the music. The music's important, but even if you turn off mm -hmm. the the dialogue for this film, it. It's the mood, the visuals tell the story. I mean, like you, you would feel what you're supposed to be feeling at each point in the movie. I think the person who, who captured that best uh, was William Gibson in his um, Neuromancer books sure. that came out just like a year after this or, or so. His descriptions. Yeah. Mm -hmm, two years. His descriptions yeah. of um, the cities and how you've got all these young kids living in the cities. Um, but really jacked in to their computers inside their apartments and never leaving. And the way they travel is through through um, the, did he call it the matrix? I can't remember what he called it, but the World Wide Web wasn't in existence the then, but yeah, the net. Yeah. And uh, so in, I think in, in terms of mood and how it makes you feel, I think Gibson and uh, some of the cyberpunk authors are closer. Than, than other movies. Well, you know, yeah. William Gibson saw this movie and he was like, I don't know if I can write my book now because they've, they've done all my ideas. And mm -hmm. Of course, he wrote the book and it did well, but you know, yeah, they're obviously very close. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, it is interesting that it, it's not a cyberpunk movie as we you know, would think of it now, but it certainly had that influence um, on the cyberpunk genre. Um, Going back to the loneliness aspect, the, the thing that I kept thinking um, when I was rereading the book, you know, between this, between that and the film, the loneliness in the book is, is, a, is in a lot of ways, a loneliness of abandonment um, because, because of the war and the dust and, and the reason that people are moving off world is to get away from that. Right. And the only ones who stay are like, people who don't pass like certain tests, whether it's an IQ test or a health test or some kind of that, or, you know, for some reason they're aberrant and just want to stay and, you know, whether it's an attachment to earth or whatever, but you get the sense of like, there's this emptiness, like in, in, you know, the apartment building where it's like one person's living there. And when, you know, someone else moves in, it's like a big deal. <laughs> you know, there's like two people now living in this apartment building. And, um, the loneliness, though, in in the film is very different, in a sense, in that it's it's a loneliness among the crowd. Like, because even just looking at like the picture here, like assuming that all the lights represent you know apartments that are that have people in them, like, and even just 
you know, in shots of like the street and whatever, there's lots of people around, but it's that loneliness in the crowd that's kind of the different thing. And, and maybe, you know, maybe ultimately, I mean, there's still types of loneliness, like it's not that different, but um, that would kind of be one difference too that I would call out um, between the two. Cause you get the sense of idea that the off world, I, I, you don't really get an explanation of why people are going off world in the film, right? It's just, it's like advertisements mm -hmm. of like, go off world. There are things out there to see and do and maybe new places to live, but there's not, it, it doesn't have the same like catastrophic, you know, reason for moving away to, you know, try to save, you know, humanity and, you know, your own life and that kind of thing um, that the book has. Uh, On the so other hand, Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. On the other hand, you're never alone. And that's why I, I put this slide together as I did. There's another YouTube video of all the eyeballs in this movie. Right. And uh, Scott was saying in the director commentary that it's the Orwellian eye. This eye in the lower mm. um, part of the screen, we'd never really know whose eye that is. That's I was going to ask. Of the movie. Mm -hmm. We don't know. Whose eye is it? Yeah. He says it's Big Brother, it's the corporations, the um, the society, the government, which, you know, was a concern of Dick's as well. But there's a lot of eyeballs in this movie. So even though you might feel lonely, you're always being watched by this giant Japanese woman that's trying to sell you gum or whatever it is she's eating. Right. Right. And that's another way that it's it's the adaptation is rather than literal, it's it's visual that we're going to get at this theme through the, you know, details that are sort of ever present in the background rather than directly in plot or dialogue. Um, and I think it, it this, you know, the eyeballs gets back to that question of empathy and identity. You know, it's about um, your perspective on the world, but also seeing you know, empathy, I think, is imagining something from somebody else's perspective. Um, and, you know, back to what Tom was saying about how it's as much as the humans, at least, uh, the replicants have this idea of, if you could see what I've seen with your eyes, if you could imagine the world through, you know, walk a mile in my shoes, that would sort of make a difference. I do think so. I, I so I take Curtis's point, like in the difference between the book and the movie. Uh, I do think though there's an interesting wrinkle in the book, in that so in the book there's this this religion where people basically connect to some online network to try to share empathetic feelings towards this Christ figure. It's very complicated. I don't I don't want to go into the details, but uh, mercerism. Mercerism, yeah. So, um. I've, I always read that as a kind of loneliness in the crowd, though, because you have a bunch of people presumably connecting from all over the world, trying to make a human connection rather than connecting in person with the people possibly right next door or in their in their neighborhood. Um, you know, there are characters <laughs> in the book. <laughs> pretty much. I was, that's where I was going. Like, this is both the book and the movie feel very relevant to. 2019 by the way the movie is supposed to take place in 2019 right. and obviously it doesn't look like 2019 but in terms of how 2019 <laughs> sometimes feels living in 2019 that sense of detachment the sense that you know a lot of our connections are 
remote or distant. Like there, there have been surveys done and the number of people, friends are disappearing. Like the number of people who actually spend time in person with friends has decreased precipitously in the past few decades. Like people just don't visit friends anymore in person. And I think that's, and so in a way like that, I kind of feel like the book and the movie both capture that aspect of how life has changed since the 80s. Yeah, Nick asks, I want, he says, I wonder if anyone had a concept at the time as to how pervasive and invasive internet advertising would be. Um, and it's like, well, no, how could they if, if there was no, no internet? Then I think that what, what at the military, but you know, not. There were things going on at the time that, were related to that. There must have been, you, you know, there's some, even if it wasn't the internet as we know it, um, there must have been the roots of something that we're experiencing that 30 years ago um, were clearly on people's minds. I don't know about 82. I had just gotten my first personal computer that spring about the time, a couple months before this movie came out. And I'm trying to think if we had chat rooms at that point or if that came a little bit later but the personal computer was just getting into people's homes at this point mine was a trs-80 by the way yeah and, well i mean i think you know the visual here of like the huge you know Times square kind of billboard you know digital billboard is i mean that's certainly pervasive i mean so the other thing i always think of what you know in sort of uh, talking about advertising and, and how pervasive it gets is uh, Minority Report, which of course is is a much later film in terms of, you know, uh, coming uh, after after this is, but in terms of the story itself, you know, also a, a Philip K. Dick story, but you know, that scene where Tom Cruise walks into the, you know, store and it's, you know, just bombarded with like all of these advertisements and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, certainly maybe in the specifics, um, you know, they wouldn't have known like, oh, you know, you go onto this computer and there's a screen and then, you know, there's these ad pop-ups. But I think given PKD's interest in sort of corporatism and advertising and um, the ways that those sorts of things can be used and manipulated by whether it's a, you know, large company or a government or kind of a blending of the two, <laughs> you know, um, I certainly, I certainly think the, those were the types of things he's thinking about. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, maybe not the specific like internet advertising, but I think the invasiveness of advertising and if people can figure out a way to, you know, target better who they're advertising and what they're advertising to them, you know, that certainly I'm sure was on his mind at various points. It, it definitely seems, um, it, just even thinking about, so, you know, another aspect of the movie that they don't have is sort of the mood dials, but I remember, um, you know, in, in rereading the book, like, like just thinking about like how much he thought about like what every little, you know, there was like a thousand or more, you know, like little, no, he's like, oh, dial it to 582 and it means this. And it's like, this is a very specific mood that you're, you know, that would help you feel and that kind of thing. So. Prozac, um, Adderall, you know, with, <laughs> it's, yeah, in a different so, way that's coming true. 
uh, you know, there's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like thinking about in the movie, like, you, you know, you're saying like Deckard feels, you know, he's obviously very alone in a lot of this movie. I'm thinking of like, you know, the, the point where he like passes out on the bed and it's just kind of like, you know, laying there and it's like, you know, if only he had his little mood dial that he could dial himself happy for a bit, you know, but he, they, they didn't bring that into the film. So, oh. yeah, I don't know. I, I wasn't really necessarily going anywhere with that mood dial thing. Well, well it's interesting the tying some of our conversation together that the only people in this movie that have friends are the replicants. Yeah. Bastion doesn't, Deckard doesn't, uh, uh, his boss doesn't seem like the kind of guy who has friends. Gaff just kind of haunts the background all the time. Uh, all the humans are very much alone and the, and the replicants really look out for each other and travel together. And yeah. Well, and they make that even more so from the book where they take away Deckard's wife, um, mm -hmm. you know, and the Sebastian character in the book doesn't have friends exactly, but he at least interacts with other human beings. He's not completely alone. There's like, you know, a bit about his, his job and his bosses and everything. Um, so they make them even more isolated in the movie. I mean, I had one caveat. Sebastian in the movie seems to be friends with Tyrell and he's playing that chess game, but that's very much an online friendship, which very much feels like a 2019, a real world 2019 thing. Sure. And yeah, I agree with Curtis that I don't think I don't think there was any any uh, specific prediction about the internet or technology in this movie, but I think because the movie is about humanity and empathy, I think that's why it captures all of this so well. And that's, you know, like, look at our political debates today about social media. One of the first things, one of the, one of the things we're talking about is, you know, is social media making us less empathetic towards other people? You know, are we, you know, this is, this is part of why we have like trolling of you know people going online and attacking other people that they don't even know and you know i, th I think the movie is kind of getting at some of those those issues and saying you know there's human empathy human empathy is something that we can't just assume and maybe it requires work and maybe it requires in-person relationships to some extent um you know so Otherwise, we just view the person in the, uh, on the other uh, on Twitter as some sort of replicant that they're not human; they're just a you know at screen name or whatever. So, should we jump to the Rachel slide because we can talk about love in cyber cyber future? Love in the cyber age. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, their their relationship is very violent it's um not traditional um and they don't even seem to really like one another very much and this is the great love story of the well i i, I don't think it's the great love story i think you know roy and pris is the great love story of this movie but um. <laughs> yeah i think this gets at a, an important question that i i view as linked to the rachel question which is who is the hero of this movie if there's a if any if anybody uh, and i remember trying to say about 15 20 years ago uh, i had first come across uh concerns about this this the scene when deckard 
uh, seems to force himself onto Rachel. And I wasn't sure what to think for a few minutes. And then you know, it, it dawned on me that like Dec Deckard's not the hero in this movie. Deckard's, the movie has never really said Deckard is a quote unquote good guy. He's not, he's not a role model. And in a lot of ways, Roy Batty fits the, the hero role that we would traditionally expect to see in the movie. He's the guy who is on a quest to achieve uh, something that he believes is good, you know, longer life. You know, he's out to write some, he's out there trying to write some wrong, and he's the guy fleeing the brutal cops. And in this movie, the cop, Deckard the cop, is pretty brutal and heartless. You know, so he's the guy who's evading the, the corrupt authorities, trying to get what he believes is his right. It, Rory Batty, in a lot of ways, it, this is this is almost his story, and I think kind of seeing it from that perspective also put the Rachel Deckard romance in context. I don't think it's supposed to be a great love story. I don't think Deckard at this point in his arc is supposed to be a Romeo. You know, he is he's a very flawed, very damaged human being who has trouble with empathy. By the end of the movie, I think he's he finally gets it. Like, I don't think end of the, this movie going forward. I don't think he would treat Rachel like that. But at this point in the movie, we're supposed to be somewhat taken aback by what he's doing. Yeah, and, and I guess he, you know, I guess you could argue that he gets there in the end. But I don't uh, get the same sense of um, internal struggle from him even throughout to the extent that there is in, in the book version of him either. Um, like I think a few times people, you know, question things like, you know, have, Rachel kind of questions, have you ever taken the empathy test? And how have, have you ever retired a human being? Like these are the same sorts of questions that get asked in the book, but I don't necessarily get the sense that um, Deckard is, struggling with those questions himself it's more like the questions are being asked of him um and mm -hmm. it's these are things that he's sort of not put a lot of thought into or sort of taking for granted i think there are a few very subtle moments when we see deckard's confidence begin to waver and the biggest one for me is when he shoots Zora in the back after she's when she's dead when the police when the other police officer is checking on her he looks visibly shaken he doesn't say anything indicating you know he doesn't it's it's but just the perform Harrison's Ford Ford's performance you know he's not this isn't a victory and the the music and everything else in the movie reinforces that and then he goes home and he looks battered he's tired um, so I think from that point on. You know, and then, and then of course, at the end of the movie, there's the whole scene with Roy Batty and Tears in the Rain. Um, part of my interpretation is also informed by the, the original theatrical cut had a voiceover narration that Harrison Ford did, which is, which is not subtle. Um, <laughs> you know, the movie, I think, says everything it needs to say, but the voiceover narration has Harrison Ford saying, at that moment, I learned what it meant to be human, blah, blah, blah. So, you know. I think it's supposed to be there. It just, it's, it's right. Yeah. Well, that's, so Nick is um, saying, you know, internal monologue, it's easier to do in books, but 
um, maybe that maybe that's the piece that not having the voiceover <laughs> or you know that the voiceover added and then was sort of taken out is is not that it was necessarily good to have the voiceover. Maybe it was a little too like you're saying, you know, hitting you over the head with it. But uh, you know, maybe even attempting that in a film is is just not the right medium to do to, to do that. Um, but I mean, in terms of Roy as the hero, I mean, I think if if the sequence of things matters, he is the one that gets the big heroic choice at the end and the sacrifice and the the empathetic um merciful choice too so um right. it, it the movie sort of culminates in that decision of his which is sort of you know that's a good indicator of that we're supposed to be sort of looking at him more closely at the end yeah he's he's luke skywalker forgiving and redeeming darth vader Mm -hmm. he's got so what do we great, make of a uh, oh sorry chris go ahead sorry, no he's got the, he's got that great speech at the end where you know uh what he's seen he's seen the attack ships off orion and he's seen the sea beams at the tannhauser gate and all of that all of those moments are going to be lost when he dies um <laughs> that's that's just the quintessential scene from this movie and mm -hmm. and it's not Harrison Ford that gets it. Mm -hmm. And we have Rucker Howard to thank for it. By which, by which you mean that Rucker Howard actually heavily rewrote that speech. That is, yes. that is his, his words. And also that the dove was his idea, holding the dove while jumping across the building. Makes and no sense, but it works. No, but when he dies <laughs> and, and he releases it when he dies, yeah. visually, um, it's very Christian imagery of a, a yeah. bird flying, to the soul flying to heaven. And yeah. it, you think that Roy Batty's soul has been released. And yeah. right. that's kind of right. weird because he's a replicant. Right. And his hand is pierced by a nail as well. Exactly. Um, there's a lot of Christ imagery of around that. Yeah. Um, and even doesn't doesn't he say um, doesn't Gaff say like are you done and, and Deckard says it is finished like there's <laughs> there's so much kind of you know biblical weight to Roy's ending there. Mm -hmm. So what do we make of Le Guin's quote then about there are no heroics but there are heroes? Do you think I mean now she's talking about the books there? Is that um, I mean, I like I, I don't disagree that Deckard has an arc that he's not a complete, you know, static character necessarily. But um, do you think that, you know, translating that arc into sort of visual terms and just through their performance reaches the same level as what's in the book? Or do you think there's a reduction of his heroism in the translation there? Hmm. I don't love the idea the term hero in this context. Um, I don't think this is a work about heroes. So I guess I hate to say this, but maybe I disagree with Le Guin. Um, and this is true for a lot of cyberpunk as well. It's and I wouldn't also wouldn't say it's a he's an anti-hero. He's just he's a flawed individual, and maybe there's some heroism in overcoming prejudice. So I, I guess 
maybe I rephrased it that say there are no heroics, like no dashing, you know, swash, mm-hmm. swashbuckling, save the, save the princess type heroics, but there's this, there's like the small everyday heroism of becoming a better person. I think that's what she, what she means. And, and she's talking about um, PK Dick's books in general. If you look at um, the man in the high castle, you know, you get a lot of people that are doing just small things um, mm-hmm. to, to make other people's lives better. And um, gosh, what's another one of his, that uh, same kind of thing. Um, you know, there's, there's Gaff in this movie does the small heroic thing of letting Rachel go. And uh, there, but there's not, you know, some big standoff between Gaff and Harrison Ford as to go, you're not going to kill her. You know, there's not a big melodramatic heroism. It's all very small and quiet, I think is what she was kind of getting to. And, I haven't I haven't read this, although I do have language of the night, so I sh- probably should read uh, this uh, piece that she wrote. But um, I would suspect too, she because a lot of what Le Guin does is responding to sort of like the sort of golden age science fiction stuff where you do have like the hero, you know, like you know that sort of like going from from even the earlier tradition of like adventure hero stories, and you know which science fiction just sort of adopted wholesale and in, into its earlier, you know, stories. And, and I think I, I would assume, you know, based on this quote that she's sort of saying like, there's no, there's no like, you know, stand up, like, you know, uh, here's the hero of the story kind of thing. It's um, yeah. Like Carter on Mars, Nick Plaza suggests, you know, like, like there's no like adventure hero per se in the story. Um, but yeah, we've got another, you know, 40 or 50 years worth of like tweaking the definition of hero behind that. So maybe, you know, some of our definitions today are, are a little different than what she was referring to in, in that quote. Per se. And when you when you do get somebody like that, um, like in We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which in the, was mm-hmm. the influence for the movie Total Recall, it's, it's fake. It's... Um, possibly programmed it's possibly imagined right. it's it's fantasy possibly yeah. well and that's what pkd does so well is you know twisting the ideas and sort of within the story retconning it you know to you know make you question is it drugs is it you know an android brain is it you know something else is it all perception you know based on what the government or corporation or whatever wants you to think um, so yeah there's a lot of a lot of that that was one thing i really enjoyed reading it too um which they don't include in this at all is the um the other uh bounty hunter character um you know, n- not having that element in the movie at all, kind of reading that and um, having it just sort of on a dime, chapter to chapter, switch back and forth. Do you think this is another replicant or not? And, you know, honestly, having, you know, I'm from chapter to chapter, my opinion is changing along with Deckard's as he's trying to figure it out. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think like some of those ideas of the heroism or anti heroism of, 
the bounty hunters and the blade runners um in the book he kind of gets out of he he gets at that through the contrast of these two characters um whereas maybe like the film kind of puts that all into deckard like you know the kind of cold remorseless side of the bounty hunter becomes part of Deckard's character as well. It's the thing that he struggles with and has to overcome rather than kind of seeing it externally in another character and being disturbed by it. There's a, there's a line that Guillermo del Toro um, is used when he ta- when he's talking about Shape of Water, his most recent film. Uh, it's a science fiction story set in the 60s and, you know, one Oscar long story short, uh, he said that the film, what he wanted to do is tell the same type of story you might have had in the 1960s, but make the people who would have been traditionally the heroes in that story the villains, and then the people who would have been ignored in that story make them the heroes. And it's like the police, the security officer in Shape of Water, you know, kind of in the 60s, he would have been like your upstanding uh, pillar of the town. But in that movie, he's corrupt and abusive. Um, and I feel like Blade Runner does that in a lot of ways ahead of its time, where you know, the authority figures are corrupt. Deckard's the cop who shoots a woman in the back. And it's the outlaws who are the, sympath- the sympathetic characters at the end of the day. And some of that too is just genius casting as well. Like, I mean, yeah. we talked about Rucker Howard and um, uh, I love Dara Hannah in this movie. She's yeah. so good. <laughs> like every time yeah. I watch it, I'm just like, I, I think she's just the best. Yeah, Rucker Howard insisted on uh, playing his, his version of a replicant as somebody who would recite poetry, you know, have smirk and it just... Mm-hmm it's very easy to imagine this film going a very different way with, with different actors. Um, having just spent um, a fair amount of time working through Buffy um, on our podcast with Curtis, <laughs> um, there's a lot of spike in uh, mm-hmm. Roy, I think. This is a real sure. influence <laughs> on that character, I think. I mean, visually, obviously, but also just like, the spouting of poetry, good or bad, and the kind of, you know, higher aspirations to sensitivity and humanity and, you know, his kind of philosophical leanings. Any anything else about the the replicants themselves? And there, I, I wanted. I was looking for that shot with the the dove and the nail <laughs> cat um, yeah. mentioned there, and sort of the. Uh, I thought we had had that in there. So um, yeah, anything well, else? About- of, there's another at one one of the slides. We have a shot of him sitting there, kind of cross legged in his little like Buddhist pose as well. So yeah. Um, Oh, Chris, I think we lost your audio. Yep, there we go. 
Um, I really like the shot of Daryl Hannah too, because she's in among these dolls and there's just no other word for them. Even though some of them are animatronic, they're nothing uh, as sophisticated as a replicant. And here she is surrounded by what should be, you know, the things that are most like her. And she's just unlike any of them at all. Um, she just can't hide. I don't know her, her passion or her life or whatever. When Deckard comes through the apartment looking uh, for the replicants, he, he can go right to her. Um, so she should be this doll, but she's, she's more alive. And should I, can I just say to you, given when we're on the scene, one of the things Ridley Scott does is, is exceptionally well in this movie is he just throws in a bunch of weird details in the background, no explanation, no context. Like, like why does Sebastian have a little teddy bear doll that walks around? Like, why did he make that? What it just seems it's such a weird thing, but it adds so much flavor to the movie. It did. It yeah. hints at a backstory to Sebastian. Um, there's also a little scene that, like, uh, when when Deckard is chasing Zora, he, you know, he runs close to a taxi cab, and then the camera uh, shows us the woman inside the cab, and she's looking at Deckard, and it just the camera just stays there for like a millisecond longer than it should in any other movie, but it just it it creates. There are these little moments that are not necessary to the story, but create an, almost a sense of unease or disorientation. Like, why, you know, is that woman important? Where, who are these dolls? And it's something that I really, you know, just ew, even even Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which I think is an amazing film. I don't think quite quite got this captured this sense of weirdness and disorientation. Sure. And, and actually, that's a, I, ha I hadn't thought about that, but that's an interesting thought um, when you bring in the idea of empathy of just sort of a random passerby or, or you know, someone diegetically watching the scenes unfolding within the world of, you know, because Deckard doesn't, he's not a cop, right? I mean, he's hired by the police, but he's not a cop. And he doesn't ever, like, that I remember he doesn't announce himself. Like he doesn't say like, stop police or anything. Right. Like it's just a man chasing a woman down the street and then shooting her in the back. Like, right. you know, imagine like being that, he's not in uniform, not, you know, right. He's not in uniform. He's, you know, there's no reason to think that she's an Android, you know, or a replicant or whatever. Like there, you know, so what would someone just sort of, like, if you were on that, you know, in that taxi or something and watching the scene unfolding, like what's this, you know, what would you just think of like seeing that happen and, you know, unfolding in front of you? Like, it, and I mean, I think even in the eighties, I mean, it was a while ago, but I think that would still be considered a bad thing back then to have, you know, a guy randomly chasing and gunning someone down in the street, you know, especially right. if, Sorry, I was going to say, especially if, like, replicants aren't even allowed on world. Like, like you get the sense that, like, this happens, but not that often. It's not, like, an everyday occurrence where they're, you're hunting down replicants in the street. <laughs> um, well, and so. is it sort of um, taboo and hushed up? So do people even know that you know, it's, it's rare? And then is it, you know, acknowledged when it does happen? If it's, it's something a, they want to kind of 
keep under wraps, then yeah, kind of publicly murdering somebody is probably not great for the PR. It's a very public, you know, uh, uh, slaughter for, you know, wanting to keep the whole thing under wraps <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah. I don't know. Well, this is so some of what I have to say is informed by 2049, but no spoilers. Um, my understanding is that this is a society that has, that, that is, there's a lot of prejudice against replicants. That they are a known entity and that most people do not like them. They view them as, they view replicants as less than human. Sure. Um, and so I think from that context, just the, the gunning down is even more interesting. Like how many of these people, even if they, if, even if Deckard had announced that he was a cop and he was killing these replicants, how many people would care? You know, I bet a lot of these people would just, yeah. would be happy. Good. You've got another replicant. Got get the criminal and not even think of this, this as a human being or as a, as a, you know, as a sentient living organism. Well, and, and that makes sense to me. What, what kind of, I don't want to say confusing, but sort of what makes me pause is, is that it's a woman just sort of watching this unfold, not knowing that it's a replicant, that thinking that it's just a guy running after a woman, presumably both of them are human. And, and there's no, there doesn't seem to be any empathy there. She's just kind of watching it. Right. Like there's no horror or. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. Um, this is a pretty grimy city. It's, you know, kind of the modern version, postmodern version of Westeros. You know, anybody can get killed at any time and you just sort of live with it. Um, you've it's got, good to know that Tyrells make it all this yeah, way. Tyrells make it all the way. Um, Still in power. <laughs> but you've got uh, Harrison Ford sitting in his car too long in an alley and a, a gang of hubcap thieves or whatever it is that they're stealing, you know, or crawling up on his car because he's just sitting there too long. There's like no expectation that you're safe in this, in this town. Um, right. Is there just an, maybe that's the only thing that can explain the kind of non-reaction of the people on the street is that replicant or not, there's just the assumption that if she's getting gunned down, she must've done something to deserve right. it. She's running she, she from had, something. She and had it coming. <laughs> just stay out of the way is sort of, you know, your best kind of policy to not getting got yourself. Yeah. And, and in this, Rachel kind of holds herself as the only character who really holds herself above any of that griminess. He calls her on the video phone, a really cool video phone and says, Hey, come on down. Uh, Taffy's buying the drinks. And uh, she's like, that's, yeah, that's not my scene, but you have fun. I really love your willingness to assume that these people believe Deckard is a cop and doing this under the, uh, uh, you know, under the aegis of the law. But, um, you know, unfortunately, even in our world, if we can find YouTube videos of people just standing around watching someone get murdered, taking taking cell phone videos even of a murder. I mean, I, I, I've, I've, I've read about these cases in some of my work. It's like, this happens in real life. Right. No reason I think these people are cops or that they're doing, you know, it's just the, it's, it's, it's somewhat shocking sometimes the ability of people to just say, I'm watching something. I'm, I'm not involved. 
therefore I'm an innocent bystander with no greater moral obligation to intervene or to call the authorities or to do anything. And it almost, it almost ties back to that, that the, the visual of the eye as you know, the eye can be powerful when it watches everything, but it also can be impotent if it's just watching and not acting. Mm-hmm. If, if, even if somebody feels empathy in their heart, if they don't act on that, if all they're doing is watching, it's, it's almost worthless. Well, right. And that's kind of what I was trying to get at by saying, like, you know, she must have done something to deserve what she's getting, not necessarily from like an actual legal standpoint, but just there, the assumption that there's something going on here that I don't, I'm not involved in. I don't understand. I don't want to know. And so the choice to just let it unfold and not get yourself involved, you know, whether they assume that he's, you know, an authority figure or not. Um, you know, at the end of the day, nobody does anything. And when you were describing that, Dom, that it reminded me of the Black Mirror episode, White Bear. Has anybody seen that? Yeah. Um, that I feel like that kind of gets it. It's a similar thing of being, you know, a voyeur of something kind of horrific and, you know, that just being, you know, getting at the kind of horror of that. It's, it's a, that's like one of the terrifying things I've ever seen. So if you want to be scared, go watch White Bear. Um, The other thing with um, Pris here that I was thinking when I had the movie on again in the background today was um, with all these, uh, it's interesting that they make Sebastian a toy maker as well. Like he's involved in the kind of genetic engineering side of things, but also he has this house full of these mannequins and dolls and automatons and everything. Is there like, you know, a, a Geppetto connection going on here is it the kind of um, puppets wanting to become human. I don't know. Well, he's got no other friends. As you say, he plays chess with Tyrell kind of virtually, but um, everybody's left Earth and gone to the off-world colonies. And he's um, he has that aging issue. He He ages too fast. He says he's 25 or something in the in the movie, and uh, so he can't go off world and he's lonely. So I think this is his way of creating his own friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Geppetto. It's also interesting, though, how some of the toys are deformed, that they're not, he does, he's not just making replicants or animatronics that look like ideal versions of people he they're they're very odd creations and i'm not i'm not i'm actually not sure what to do with that i don't know if that says something about you know maybe maybe there's something about the fact that he doesn't feel as connected to humanity he is so alone you know he's not he's not just making a a you know, he's not, like, one could imagine with his technological abilities, he would have created a really gorgeous wife 
and settle down with her. But that's not what he does. He creates something that's just not human. And it's just, it's a, it's a very, it's a very interesting decision. Well, and there's his own disease as well. Like there's some connection there too. Um, his sense of whether it's perceived lack of humanity or however he would characterize that or, um, or feeling not quite, you know, whole or, or healthy himself, that sort of reflected in the, the friends and the toys that he makes around him. Yeah, when Pris does uh, come into his life, um, you can see that he's very nervous around her. She's very beautiful. He's saying all the time, oh, you're so beautiful and I'm just so, you know, deformed or ugly or old or whatever. Um, maybe he wouldn't feel comfortable around making a, a, I'm thinking of a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode where makes the girlfriend, robot girlfriend. Um, you know, maybe he, he wouldn't feel comfortable with a beautiful robot girlfriend. Maybe he doesn't feel worthy of it. You know, this is a society that told him he's less than human. Maybe he's internalized that. Yeah, absolutely. You want to go hang out on the island of misfit toys if you're a misfit toy. What about the, the change from it being um, Isidore is kind of the analog in, in the book. His, you know, this idea of, in, in the book they call them like chicken heads, like this idea that he, the, the nuclear toxic dust has, you know, affected his uh, intellectual capacity. In some way, we never quite find out exactly what's wrong with him, but at least so they say, he's, you know, become sort of subhuman and um, his, you know, in his brain or something. Um, and here, um, it's this, what does he call it? Methuselah disease or something? It's like an aging, he ages at, at a faster rate than normal, um, which kind of connects him to, I mean, I, maybe that's one reason for the change. It's sort of, par he's paralleled to the replicants who only live for four years, right? So he's sort of, you know, can, again, empathize with them because of a similar sense of imminent mortality. Um, but is there other reasons for the change, do you think? Or do you prefer one or the other or kind of, I, I mean, I guess it's a visual thing as well. You kind of have him with his kind of wrinkled before his time. You know, it's, a, it's something you can see rather than the chicken head thing is a little more abstract, I guess. Well, if he's a chicken head, you know, they would have no reason to seek him out. And in the movie, you know, they, the reason that they come to him is that they think he can get them to Tyrell. So he's got to be a brilliant, you know, mm -hmm. programmer or whatever. So I think they couldn't really do the chicken head thing in the movie that way. Right. And that's true. In the book, they just kind of stumble across him because his apartment building that he lives in alone is way outside of the city in the suburbs where everybody's sort of fled and he's the only one left. Whereas here, that sense of he's alone in a crowd, like, yes, he has an apartment building to himself, but it's right smack in the middle of the city. And um, yeah, and he's their link to the Tyrell Corporation. So that makes sense. Yeah, I, I really like both. I like both versions. I probably like the movie version a bit more. I, I 
partly because of that parallel with the accelerated aging, um, you know, I think it's really fascinating. I'm, you know, I, I don't, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhat troubling though, too, if, if it's implying that the reason why Sebastian is able to feel empathy towards Pris, you know, to, to be able to engage with them as, as basically human beings is because he, because of that commonality, because of that shared accelerated decrepitude, that, that shared flaw. And if that's the case, what does that say about the rest of us or people who don't have that fatal flaw? Is that, is it, is it that we, is it that we need, we need to suffer in the same way as the other person does in order to empathize with them? Or can we get beyond that? And that's where the, the ending with Deckard maybe gives us some hope and that Deckard is finally able to get beyond, you know, does he doesn't, he doesn't have to have the same disease and he, but, you know, other than, other than Sebastian, there's really nobody else in this movie who shows any empathy at all. I, I mean, the human characters who shows any empathy. Well, and it's really just a difference of degree, right? Because yes, you know, Sebastian can relate in that his life is literally being cut short. But I think the point of the quote at the end about it's, you know, or this one that we have on the slide here, that it's a shame she won't live, but then again, who does? Like, you know, I can't relate to what it feels like to know I'm going to die in four years, but um, I can relate to the idea of, you know, death full stop, that eventually, whether in four years or 40, you know, death comes for us all. Um, and that is a universal experience, you know, it seems between the humans and the replicants and the animals. Um, so it shouldn't just be whose experience can you directly relate to and that it's most close to yourself. Um, this is the one thing that's shared between everybody. Yeah, that is the diff that difference is one of the reasons why Earth has instituted this policy of banning replicants. Like this is one of the major differences, if not the major difference between humans and replicants. And it's enough. Like it it's so like just in to clarify, replicants in the Blade Runner universe are not robots. They're not androids. They are biological beings. You know, if you if you open them up, they pretty much look like humans. That's why that's why Deckard has to use this empathy test mm -hmm. because you can't just like cut one open and see if it's a replicant or, replicant or not. So that you're so okay. You're right. Like that difference, like humans have that fear of death. It shouldn't be a big difference, but in a lot of ways, like it makes all, it makes a world of difference. And that's an interesting flip from what it normally is. Because I think when I think of whether they've become come before this or afterward, all the things that are most similar in terms of a story like Battlestar Galactica and humans and Westworld and all the stories we have right now about, you know, androids and things like that. It's usually that those are the immortal beings. Um, and we're the, you know, the tiny, and, and we kind of value our mortality as, well, that makes us human, that we face death and you're inhuman because you're just a thing that lives forever and you can't understand that. And here it's flipped. Like, you know, mortality is universal in this world, but if anything, it's reversed in that the replicants are the ones facing that most imminently and they're being hunted down. So they're not even going to last four years. They're lucky if they're going to last like four days because 
the Blade Runners after them. Um, that's an interest I hadn't really before this thought that that's the reversal of how it's normally done, which is another unusual thing about, you know, PKD flipping your expectations of what you expect. Well, and it's, I agree with that. On top of that, it's the artificiality of the built in, you know, four year accelerated death, right? Like, like there's no reason why they should have to die in four years other than how they were programmed. They're, like they're they were, afraid you know, they because of the fear. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's not even just that like, oh, they're, you know, they're, they're just going to wear out in four years and we couldn't figure out a way to make them last longer. It's like, no, they could theoretically last a very long time, much longer than human life stands. But because humans were afraid of them, they built in this this time bomb, you know, make so it so already, that they can't. They're already stronger than humans. They're more intelligent than humans. If they live longer than four years, their developers were afraid that they would um, they would be uh, become empathetic and, and emotional and then we've just kind of programmed ourselves out of existence or out of out of um the the chain because there's going to be a more uh, a new apex predator at that point if we don't build in a four-year or some kind of um, terminus for them then people like roy will come to earth and, and get rid of us because they're obviously superior to us so i mean we can't we can be all empathetic and and nice to them when they've got a four-year lifespan, but give them a hundred years, and and uh, there would be no humans left. Like I, I think that's that's probably the logic of the Earth government at the time, and that's that's also if you look at a lot of ethnic conflict around the world in our world, they they they, they follow a similar logic. You know why you know, a lot of ethnic conflicts usually starts with the with the claim that if we let the other ethnic group keep going the way it is they will overtake us they're mm -hmm. either because they're richer or because they're more powerful or because they're they're secretly stockpiling arms and so we've got to act first and wipe them all out or or ban them um, and you see a lot of ethnic conflict comes about when you have periods of demographic change when one ethnic group population is either like suddenly increasing or decreasing relative to the other that's that's those are moments of tension so mm -hmm. yeah like i think i think chris that's it sounds it sounds like this it seems like this is this is a world in which the government of earth saw the potential for conflict and is basically creating an apartheid regime or something worse than apartheid apartheid with a kill switch Absolutely. Yeah, and th so there's the economic side of that too. So it's interesting that the um, the Tyrell Corporation is like there. There's that sense of like we'll, we'll survive no matter what. Like what whatever the rules are, we'll adapt and you know bend a few or you know whatever. But you know, like clearly, you know, they're not supposed to have androids on Earth yet. Oh. Here's or sorry, replicants on Earth, but like here's one right here in in the corporation. You know that's 
um, I think in the in the book, it's like, oh, or, or I don't, I, I'm getting confused now. I think in the book, they're like, oh no, it, it, it's you're you're safe um, when Rachel sort of learns of her androidness, and it's like, no, no, you're you're just like a sales model, so you're good. You, you know, you don't have to like abide by the rules and it's like well is is that true like i don't i don't based on what i know of like the laws i don't know if that's actually accurate or not but um yeah well, the same the idea to discredit the the, the void comp test when right. records claim she's a replicant they say no no she's really human your test is just wrong mm-hmm. right but then that doesn't like he figures that out and then they're like yeah. well no it's it's okay because she's she's just a sales model she's not like a you know, an actual, you know, free roaming <laughs> Android or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. So, I mean, just that, just that idea of like, kind of what you're going back to, Dom, to what you were saying of like, there's the, yeah, the repression of, you know, whatever it is, keeping the, you know, number of, you know, a particular ethnic group or, or, you know, people down, but then it's also like the economic oppression, right. Of like, not like, even if like, there's not actually any greater numbers, it's also like, well, we can't give the ones that do exist, you know, greater power and, and sort of the way the Tyrell corporation works in here is, is to do that kind of thing of like, okay, we'll, we'll just sort of adapt our business model to whatever, you know, however we need to, to sort of stay, in power, you know, economically speaking, and, and I, the the whole, I mean, as happens with some of these movies, it's not entirely clear what sort of economic system they have. It's sort of, you know, some kind of crony capitalist, you know, link between government and and business, and you're not quite sure how it all interplays. They don't go into a lot of detail, but you know, you get the sense of like, okay, yeah, the government comes up with these laws to make the people safe or at least make them feel like they're safe and you know and then the businesses just sort of adapt and then you know grease the palms of whoever they need to grease and kind of do their own thing anyway and as long as like nobody finds out what's going on then they're just going to keep doing their thing and and kind of being at the top of their game and consolidating their power in whatever way they can i'd almost put it even a bit more starkly the government doesn't create the laws to make people feel safe. The government, you know, I think makes these laws, banning replicants, make them feel that they're better than somebody. Because, you know, if the people are at the bottom of the pyramid, they might feel oppressed. But if there's one group that's below them, hey, they're better sure. than somebody else. I mean, this is, you know, in the, in, in the South, it's, it's slavery and segregation. That This was the way that white politicians often uh, kept segregation a lot. You know, you're you, know, you, the white farmer, might be suffering on your farm, but you know, at least you're better than the the African American over there, who's even worse off. Mm-hmm. Um, I get the book and the and the movie confused sometimes, but um, in both, don't they offer anybody who will go off world a free yeah. replicant slave? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, hey, go off world right, and you're perfect yeah. workmate that will do all the stuff you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And um, and just for free for going off world. So I think what Dom says is right on target. There are yeah, also some. There's been some suggestions too that 
the off-world colonies aren't as nice as they are made to be in the advertisements. Um, sure. So, I wouldn't you know, doubt it. And it, 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 some of that goes into 2049, yeah. so I won't go too far into it. But, you know, it's there are questions as to, you know, what, like, if this is really what people would want. I think in the book it's made a bit, in the book it's much more about escaping the effects of the world war. Um, right. And that earth is really destroyed. But I think Nuclear in the movie, mm -hmm. yeah, there are questions as to whether people really should be going off world. Yeah, I, I guess that more is the book. I definitely had that impression of we need to offer some extreme incentives to, because otherwise this doesn't, you don't have the impression that this is a desirable or, you know, not that Earth is desirable, but um, that it wouldn't really be worth it to go colonize Mars unless you were sort of given this small army of slaves to do the work for you. Yeah, we never really get to hear from humans that have been off world, do we? No, which is sort of ominous, you know, mm -hmm. the fact that like, the only ones that come back or you hear anything are the escaped slaves who are, you know, doing whatever they can to get away. Like that, I don't think that's a great sign. It, uh, it reminds me of the Douglas Adams, um, one of the later ones in his uh, Hitchhikers series where there's the planet with the three spaceships. And in the first spaceship are all the scientists and the leaders. And in the third spaceship are all the workers. And in the middle spaceship are like the um, marketers and um, the real estate agents and the lawyers. And they shoot that ship off first and they say, we're right behind you. We'll be right there. And, and they just kind of shoot them off into space. And that was a great way to get rid of all the people they didn't want um, from their planet. <laughs> Maybe this is the way the Blade Runner governments get rid of people that they don't want from their planet. I don't know. I have no insight into that. Well, I'd also point out that if um, the uh, Roy Batty, so when Bryant is going over the, the replicant files, Roy Batty is a, a soldier model and Chris is a pleasure model, you know, a sex slave, essentially. Neither of which indicates that, you know, these all-forward colonies are the, are, are, are paradise. If you have a you basically have a combat model. That means there's got to be some fighting over there, and, and um, you know, some some more. We do, again, nothing nothing hints about that in the movie. Just the fact that you need combat model replicants, though, mm. is ominous. And well, you know, and again, pleasure model replicants. Like why? You know, it's just it's it doesn't suggest that you, people are happily using Match.com and the off-world colonies, and you know settling down into loving family relationships. Well, and isn't Zora like an assassin model or something? Don't they use yeah. that word? Like yeah. that, that can't be good. Like <laughs> not even combat, like, like combat even sounds like one thing, but assassin is like, who are you, you know, who are they targeting, you know, have, you know, targeted killing against, like, why would you need this model? Um, well, and, and the opening text of the movie, isn't it like there, there was like an uprising or something, which is like what brought around the whole four year, you know, limit and all of that, too. So it's like, like not only do you have like these combat models and assassins and all of these things, but like you can't keep control of them either. Like they're I mean, they might be slaves, but they're not, you know, 
obedient slaves, apparently. Um, David Erbach suggests that uh, the famous line about the attack of the ships, uh, the ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion being another reference to off-world fighting as well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and if it's, you know, the Orion constellation, like how far are they going? Um, like, I think in the book, they mostly just talk about Mars, but there's this idea that like, they've spread out over great distances. Well, you know, if it's human beings running these colonies, <clears throat> they already messed up Earth. Um, right. We don't have a great track record of not messing things up. Right. Well, and, and given, uh, you know, how much of this is propaganda versus, I mean, that's kind of like the whole thing with Philip K. Dick, right? Like, you don't know, like, how much is real and how much is perception and, you know, you know, uh, uh, propaganda or, or disinformation or that kind of thing. So there's a very real chance that like, yeah, is all the fighting amongst humans? Are they fighting other people? Is, is half of what they're doing, like not even happening at all? <laughs> Who knows like what's really going on? Um, Sharon has a comment about them not allowing Sebastian off-world. So there's some sort of criteria for who gets to go. And she says if they were trying to get rid of humans by sending them off-world, they would have sent Sebastian. But I feel like it's about, we want the right people to go, right? Like this is again back into forcing people into these classes and categorizations and everything that we want to incentivize the right type of people um, because if Sebastian's go and populate the stars, that's not what we want. We want Sebastian to stay here on earth, which is doomed. Um, and so it's like the people that want to go aren't allowed and the people that they want to go have to be coerced and bribed and given lots of treats. That's the way I read it anyway. Did you guys notice how many little people they had in this movie? This time mm -hmm. it really struck me that like the, the gang that attacks Deckard's car um, yeah. has little people in it. You see them. Right. The toys too. Like, the toys, um, but just people walking on the street. So maybe they just really want the big soldier type humans too to go fight their war, excuse me, colony in the stars. Must be this tall to get on this ride. Exit Earth. To exit Earth. Well, what do we have left? Yeah. So, well, we had a we had um um I don't know if you'd want want to get into the identity identity question. Um, yeah, Dom, do you want to say something about? Um, your paper? Yeah, so I'm working on a paper comparing um, identi identity in Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. I won't talk about 2049 tonight, so no spoilers. Um, but the central argument is I, I, take a, I, I take a debate in the political science literature about ethnic identity, and long story short, there's this 
you know, in what it is typically in, seen as an older view in political science that ethnic identity is something that's intrinsic to who you are as a person. It doesn't change. It's, 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 it's primordial. It's like something that's, so like if you are, you know, if you are, um, you know, like German or Italian, Catholic, or like your ethnic identity is set. Whereas uh, there's a more recent view that posits that your, your, your ethnic identity is socially constructed, that it's not set, that it can change over time, that it depends on your context. So, you know, I, I happen to be Italian American, but, and, but I, like, when I'm, when I'm filling out census forms for the US government or other government paperwork, I, I am white or Caucasian because that's the box that they have. If I go to Italy, everyone's Italian there. I would say my family's from Naples. You know, so mm -hmm. like my end, my identity depends on who I'm talking to. And in the paper, at least for Blade, the, the, the first Blade Runner movie, I argue that it's a really good example of constructivism, at least that kind of pure extreme form of constructivism where you know, the difference, you know, aside from the, the, the accelerated aging thing, which as we said is really an artificial constraint imposed by the programmers and not anything intrinsic to who the replicants are. Like aside from that, the replicants are identified as replicants because society passed a law saying that these are replicants and that if they come to Earth, they should be killed. But there's nothing intrinsic to that. And throughout the course of the movie, we see the replicant. We start, I think as the viewer, we start identifying the replicants as more and more human. And that's the, what Deckard concludes by the end of the movie with Roy Batty, that this is a human. So the, 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 the identity of the, the replicant characters changes based on how other people treat them. Well, that, uh, you know, makes me think of things in the movie and the book about this idea of passing as well. Like, you know, that, that how much of their, there's no real biological, like you said, these are, um, they're not robots. There's no biological difference between these types of people. So their differences are, culturally imposed um you know i mean i guess they were made not born there might be certain things you could point to as having actual different experiences but mostly these are sort of um identities that are constructed like you said yeah and just, just to clarify the, the constructive approach to identity isn't that biology doesn't matter like we're race blind mm -hmm. it's more how we interpret that biology and the context in, in which we interpret it So yeah, like there might be a biological difference, like the 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 lifespan, like being born, but those are not necessarily determinative in in determining if 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 a being is a human. Mm. You know, that line depends on our how our society views humanity. Right, and and not um, determinative of what kind of person you are. What you know your choices are what your beliefs are um how you relate to your fellows in the world around you those are um not you know like as we said we can find examples of how those don't fall along the lines that 
socially we're told that they will, that humans act this way and replicants act this way, that doesn't seem to be the case in how the story actually plays out. Yeah, and in terms of the biology, again, going back to Sebastian, the point you were making before, Sebastian, like the replicants, is going to die young. You know, he has accelerated decrepitude, yet nobody, I guarantee nobody watching the movie ever thinks, oh, because of that biological difference, he is a replicant. Mm. No, and we, we all classify him as human, because that's what society tells us to do. And we have the right to shoot him on the street, because he's not like us. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I'm looking here at Rucker Howard with his shirt off, and I'm thinking, I, I bet he has a belly button. Like, who gave the replicants belly buttons? That has to be. <laughs> Could, wouldn't you do something to make them more recognizable if they're so horrible to have on Earth and you need to be able to distinguish them from humans? Why did we, who created them, make it so hard to distinguish them from humans? We could have, you know, made some change to their to their biology or, or something. I don't know. But um, well, I, does that get back to why, I mean, for reasons of their own, the Tyrell Corps isn't necessarily doing the thing that mm. the police or the government or the people would like there's this sense of like with the Voight contest and everything, they're always trying to stay one step ahead of detection. Um, for whatever reason, you know, I don't know. Does that make them more marketable as slave labor? I'm not sure what's their sort of business uh, motivation for that, but it seems like their goal is to make them as indistinguishable as possible. Um, and every time there's a new development of an empathy test, well, we make a better model of Android mm -hmm. and stay just that much ahead of it. Yeah, maybe it's like an uncanny valley thing. Like you have to get through that to a point where people are going to actually accept them as not having a belly button is just too weird. So they give them belly buttons. The no belly button model didn't sell. That didn't test yeah. well with the focus that was, that was, The Nexus Five, you know, didn't have that. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't as good. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. Anyway, sorry. If you are um, a replicant, you know, and, and I'm thinking about what your identity is. Um, Roy says, um, "To be a slave is to live in fear," and so I think that their ethnic identity is slave. And that certainly separates them um, from humans. Uh, Deckard doesn't know what it's like to die until he's hanging off of that building. Um, yeah, it would be that would be interesting to interrogate that a little bit more. Good paper, Dom. I want to read it. Thanks. Um, Sh Sharon says the company slogan is "more human than human," so that sure. this is their business model. That's what they. Are giving you know the service that they're providing for the people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, other sci-fi stories have done you know had similar like like Westworld, um, um, Humans, the TV show, um, you know, a lot of uh, Battlestar Galactica, and a lot of these shows when they have human-like 
robots, they look pretty indistinguishable from humans. I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head that is human looking, but clearly not human. Um, in Battlestar Galactica, they had, like for one episode, they had uh, the Cylon spines light up when they were having sex for some reason. And that they never carried that forward. So I wouldn't even count that as a biological difference. But yeah, most of the times they are they're human. And I think that's obviously there are some non diegetic reasons for that. Like you don't if you're talking if you're doing a story about humanity, it makes more sense to have a, a being that looks human. But you know, I also wonder if that's because um you know, we like we value humanity and you know, if we're going to have somebody do our labor, you know, especially going back to what we were talking about before about how sometimes one of the incentives to having your replicant slave might be that feeling of power. Well, you probably wouldn't have that feeling of power. Like you don't have a feeling of power over your Roomba or your or your vacuum because they're not human. They're not. They don't look yeah. sentient. They don't look anything like us. But you can get that power trip by lording over something that's human. And that might be part of the appeal too. Um, data from Star Trek would be the only one I could think of that. Oh was yeah, all, of course. All, yeah, data. Almost human, but not you know like yes, recognizably, not recognizably not, not yeah. through mannerism and you know somewhat through look. Yeah, there, there was a show with Carl Urban. It only lasted um, half a season, I think, called Almost Human. And I think his he was a cop yeah. and he had a partner that I think um, might have had a few exposed circuits or something. Otherwise, he looked human. I'd have to go back and watch that again. I, I think it, it, it doesn't go too far, but that show Humans on like the BBC show, I think that skews more robot looking than some of them. Like They're not naturalistic in their movement. And yeah. they have the eyes, which some of them can wear the contacts, but like the... Mm -hmm the sheen of the skin and, and yeah, that's true. like there's a few of them that are pretty close, but like, I feel like they try to make their Android robots look a little more robotic than some of these other examples. But there are robots on that show or whatever they are that pass as human. There's the, right. Yes. There's, there's yes. the one, I don't want to give spoilers away if you're going to go run right. out and watch that show now, but there's one that you think is human for the whole first season. And then, right. Right, but but they're like the exception. There's like a few of them, but the other ones are a little more. Like you kind of get the sense that, by and large, they're a little more distinguishable. But then there's this fear that they're going to start to become a little more naturalistic and start mm -hmm. to infiltrate. Xenia um. um, suggests the Doctor on Voyager. Um, I'm not as familiar with Voyager, so I don't oh, yeah. know Robert what that is. Um, yeah, the hologram, the hologram, hologram. Yeah, the hologram. Yeah. That's a good one. So the Deckard-Rachel relationship. Yes. I mean, is that him just wanting to have power over? In light of the discussion we just had, I think you right. definitely have to consider <laughs> that point of view. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, and I mean, her, every relationship with her, right? Because I mean, the Tyrell Corporation, like, mm. that's what, mm. I mean, you, you know, she doesn't necessarily know it initially, but then. Um, She's owned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, you know, 
uh, sorry, I'm, I'm blanking on the the guy's name there, the the senior Tyrell. Um, you know, and Tyrell, Mister. You know, I mean, like when he suggests, like, oh, she's starting to guess and that kind of thing. I mean, she questions her whole relationship there. But what's interesting then? Yeah, I, I think that. Deckard's, you know, motivation could certainly be, you know, one of dominance or, or whatever there, but what's her motivation? Um, oh, survival. Sure. But she, she leaves and kind of goes out on her own, right? So, like, and hangs up on him on, like, video phone and stuff. That's like, true. so, like, you know, she, she could presume, like, if she left Earth, then she would be totally fine presumably, right? So what if she just continued to pass as a human long enough to just get off of Earth and then she's not breaking any laws, presumably. Um, Good point. I've always gotten the sense with that scene that it's 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 almost like I almost get the sense that it's it's two people who have never been in a romantic relationship and don't know how to show tenderness really badly fumbling their way through. It's almost like they don't know how to do this. They don't know. Rachel has never had this experience before. Like, what is she, what is her role? What is she supposed to be doing? Like, what is, you know, like, you know, is she supposed to say, I love you? Like, is she, you know, or in, in Deckard, probably has never been in a tender relationship either. He was, he, the voiceover says he was married, but we get the sense that that was a very bad marriage. So it's like, you know, I think there's kind of this, this this dominance there, but like a lot of abusers, you know, I have to wonder if it's that's maybe because he was in a in a you know he was abused himself, or he he has felt like he has been the oppressed, and his way of reacting against that is to think, oh, the way to have a relationship is to be the oppressor, to be the dominant one, and that's yeah. where by the end of the movie he changes. That's pretty typical. Abused children grow up to be abusers in yeah, a lot yeah. of cases. Um, I put this picture of Joan Crawford in the corner stylistically to show how Rachel's hair and the big shoulder pads and everything came from from uh, this Joan Crawford. This is in Mildred Pierce, which is a, a book and a um, movie and a TV show later with... Um, the Kate Titanic Winslet. girl, yeah, Kate Winslet, um, about a self-made woman, and I thought that was really hmm. interesting. That is Rachel, the ultimate self-made woman. Once she realizes what she is, she leaves Terrell. She goes out on her own, um, and basically creates this uh, relationship of some sort with um, with somebody who can get her out of out of her situation. I don't know. I thought it was interesting. I don't know if I really have any answers, but um, mm. I wonder why they picked the Joan Crawford look, except that it's fierce. Sure. But I wonder if there's... Sure, and I think it, it draws it. from the, the kind of 40, 1940s noir aesthetic that's kind of, you know... I mean, um, there may be deeper reasons than that as well, mm. but... Um, yeah, I would just add to the self-made woman thing that not only it's I wouldn't even say that Rachel latches on to some man who's gonna get her out of the situation. She's the one who saves Deckard when Leon is attempting to kill him. 
she kills the big bad yeah. replicant. Mm-hmm. The only the only replicants Deckard kills, he kills two women by shooting them in the back. You know, he's not. And so I, 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 I yeah, Rachel. <laughs> I get the sense that Rachel could have tried to fend for herself, but for the fact that she had no idea who she was. Yeah. Um, Sharon says uh, she thought that Rachel was in danger even off planet uh, because she didn't have the short life programming. Um, and that, pos- you know, that her design wasn't sort of permitted or allowed or whatever. Um, and, I, and I ask, is she misremembering that? I, I don't know if that's explicitly it's stated or not. I don't remember. Debatable. She asks, oh, what is specifically stated is that she asks Deckard, you know, what was in my file and was my date in my file? And Deckard says, I didn't read that part of your file. So mm-hmm. she doesn't know. So it's kind of left open for interpretation. Um, There's some 2049 stuff version. that might bear on yeah. this. So, okay. Well, come back to later, maybe. So we can come back to that. Uh, well, I mean, if she's still around in 2049, then we know that she didn't have the four-year programming, right? But that might be why <laughs> um, she's no. them out, is she's hoping that he knows when her um, retirement date is or whatever. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's fair. To... And I'm not even suggesting that, like, without that, that there's still not reason for her. I guess I'm just, like, there There seems like some incentive, at least for her to leave, you know, the planet. But, yeah, like, maybe it, it, if it's a journey of self-discovery for her and Rickard's the one, or, sorry, Deckard. <laughs> I combined <laughs> them there. Uh, if Deckard's the one who's going to know, uh, and the Game of Thrones references are, like, thrown me Anyway, uh, you know, if she's, uh, if, if he's the one who's got the information on her, then yeah, it definitely makes more sense for her to seek out. And, and I mean, you know, not the first story that has sort of a, you know, hunter versus prey sort of attraction between them, right? Like, I mean, how? I mean, I, th- I think too that how that realistic was, that is, is a separate I, issue. I think I that's kind of like, a movie cliche of, again, I think it's another way of showing externally what they're trying to get across internally of how do I convey my mixed feelings and my feeling mm-hmm. of, of attraction, but also reserve. And how do we interpret that sort of so that people can see it? Well, you have her resist and then and then you're supposed to get the idea that she actually is into him. She's just resisting. And I think it doesn't, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a thing that movies do that I think is nowadays, I think we're very sensitive to the way that that comes across that, you know, certainly wasn't, um, I don't think would have read the same way in 1982. Maybe it did for some people, but. Um, well, it's a, so like, I think, I think cat, like, I think, yeah, that's, that, that's what they were going for although i think there's also the complication that um uh harrison ford and sean young the actors involved in the scene had issues with each other they did not get along Mm -hmm. so there's Mm -hmm. that dynamic as well that you know again non-diegetic you know it just i don't know what you want to do with that but it's it is um it is something 
Right. So does it come across even more fraught than they were intending? Um, I suspect so. This was her first movie. Um, so she didn't really have, she wasn't in high school plays, like nothing. So, um, you know, she just had her natural talent to go on and maybe she didn't know quite how to do um, subtext or subtlety. But I think that there is an argument, like which one of them is the hunter and which one is the prey. She does the perfect stuff to reel him in, hanging up well, on him. You know, and, and that's definitely a question, like you were saying before, like how much of her leaving with him at the end is about her getting what she needs to, mm -hmm. you know, be self-made, like you said, to escape her situation. Like, do we think this is a long-term, in, in her mind, a long-term solution? Or is this a, you know, this is my ticket out of here and it's going to last for as long as I need it to in order to feel like I'm free and can go off on my own? I think it's interesting in that, and uh, all of the, all of the major characters in Blade Runner have some sort of animal associated with them, and I won't go through them all. Like, there's theories about that you can look online. Rachel, the name Rachel in Hebrew means like you, you know, like female sheep, and there are other, mm. especially in the book, That's they kind of hit on that pretty heavily that she's her. Like, there's some sheep iconography associated with her, but she's mm. also associated with a spider. You know, there's that story she tells Deckard about how when she was younger, you know, she saw the spider, and it's like that's a kind of it's not all spiders are evil, not all spiders are predatory, but like the popular conception of spiders is that they are predatory, that they will try to lure somebody in the web and tangle them up. And I just that's a very interesting association for a character who kind of seems helpless on the surface or very confused on the surface and what that spider story is about is babies eating their mother is the young yeah. eating the parent which she doesn't kill Terrell but um well if it's if it's taken as a broader metaphor for the replicants mm -hmm. yeah, that's exactly what they do the children come home and kill the parents she's right. also and there's Battlestar Galactica foreshadowing there mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we're kind of at the two hour mark here. Um, and, you know, I mean, we will have another discussion around uh, Blade Runner 2049. So we can revisit some of this stuff as well. So but uh, one last question that should only take us like a minute or two to answer uh, comes from Xenia. Do replicants have souls? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I don't know if that's one that we can answer. <laughs> Maybe it's a good paper topic. Um, or yeah, or, or maybe the next movie club, we can tackle that one. Uh, I, I think the bird imagery of Rucker Hauer letting go of that bird at the moment of his death leaves that as a very valid question. I don't have an answer, but I, I certainly think that the imagery could be read that way. Uh, all right. Well, on that note, um, we're going to, we're going to close down. Thank you everyone for joining and for, uh, your comments and questions and, uh, yeah, we'll be back in March uh, for the Blade Runner 2049. So go out and watch that and uh, brush up and um, buy 4K may... TV and upgrade yeah, buy, all your Blu-ray. Buy 4K TV. 4K. 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 
yeah, watch instead everything. Instead of getting in. my pipes fixed, I think I'll do that. Super yeah. high depth. Can I make uh, one more one more quick plug? Um, you know, sure. if you if you are into Blade Runner, there's a really great podcast called Children of, of Orion where they have new episodes like every two weeks or so, mm. really going in depth into Blade Runner. So if, if this was fun tonight, it's something you might want to check out. There you go. All right. Well, thank you all, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Have a good night.